Good morning. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of First Chronicles, chapter 25, verses 1 through 8. That can be found on page 353 in the Black Bibles in your pews. First Chronicles, chapter 25, verses 1 through 8. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. The list of those who did the work and of their duties was of the sons of Asaph, Zachar, Joseph, Nathaniah, and Asherah, sons of Asaph under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. Of Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun, Gedaliah, Zerai, Jesheah, Shimei, Hashabiah, and Mattathiah, six under the direction of their father, Jeduthun, who prophesied with the lyre in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Of Heman, the sons of Heman, Bekiah, Madaniah, Uziel, Shebuel, and Jeremoth, Hananiah, Hanani, Eliatha, Gedaltai, and Romamtai Ezer, Joshbekesha, Malathi, Hother, Mahaziah, all these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, according to the promise of God to exalt him. For God had given Heman fourteen sons and three daughters. They were all under the direction of their father in the music in the house of the Lord, with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman were under the order of the king. The number of them, along with their brothers, who were trained in singing to the Lord, all who were skillful, was 288. And they cast lots for their duties, small and great, teacher and pupil alike. Amen. Somebody came prepared today. (laughs) Hey, it's good to be with you all today. Let's pray and we'll uh, get into the text. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word brings life, that it gives us wisdom and understanding. Thank you that it is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. Thank you that you have revealed yourself in and through your word, that you give us grace to order our lives in accordance with your word. God, I ask this morning as we look at this part of Chronicles, would you give a spirit of revelation, a spirit of wisdom? Would you speak to us? and order our lives and our spiritual family around the things that matter, around worship, around thanksgiving, around praise, around giving you glory, around the majesty of who you are. Would you come and be with us this morning? Give grace upon the speaking and the hearing of your word. 
for the glory of your son, Jesus. And in his name, amen. Amen. So if you are uh, newer with us this morning, we want to welcome you. Uh, you. You're finding yourself right in the heart of a sermon series that we're preaching through the books of Chronicles, uh, looking at, we're, we're talking about it under the header of building a house for God's name. And we find ourselves uh, back in, if you have been with us, in another section that kind of smacks like the first nine chapters of Chronicles. These long lists of names, these uh, genealogies, looking at these houses and the sons of these people. And, and so what I want to do today is take uh, this section that we heard read, uh, chapter 25, verses 1 to 8, and use it as a framework for understanding the broader section of where we find ourselves right now, which is chapters 23 to chapters 29. Look at letter A here with me. So the primary theme of the section we're in right now, uh, where we find ourselves in Chronicles, is David's painstaking preparations that he's making to ready his son Solomon to build the temple, right? So if, if you remember back in 1 Chronicles 17, David had a desire to build a resting place for God. God withstood him and said he wasn't going to be able to do it, but that his son Solomon was going to. And, and the rest of the book of 1 Chronicles outlines everything that David did to get Solomon ready to fulfill this task before the Lord. Uh, in chapter 22, letter B, we saw last week the lengths to which David went to get ready the resources that would be needed for the house of God. The labor, the materials, the wisdom that Solomon needed. Uh, he, he, he spent uh, extensive time and energy orchestrating and ordering all of these things to hand off to Solomon to be ready to build the temple. Then uh, the chronicler turns and spends an extended section uh, verses, or uh, chapters 23 to 27, outlining the meticulous organization of the people that's going to be required to facilitate the worship that's going to happen in the temple, right? But, and again, this isn't ex as exhaustive as those first nine chapters of Chronicles, but they're as kind of difficult. You get bogged down in them if we don't understand what's going on. So I want to give a flyover of what's happening and then highlight why uh, there, there's this focus right at the center of this section on the, the, the lengths to which David went to set up temple musicians, musicians at the heart of what's happening here. Let her see these chapters emphasize for us something that the centerpiece of Israel's national life was to revolve around the worship of the Lord as represented in the ministry of the temple. So everything in Israel was meant to center around the temple, this place of meeting with God. Offering right worship to the Lord was of such great importance that it necessitated extensive administrative organizing of the people. There's a lot of pain and energy and time uh, that David put to organizing the people in order to pull this off. I mean, if you read this, if you have any uh, administrative bone in your body, if you lead anyone, you know how hard it is to get two people walking in the same direction. 
There's 38,000 Levites. 24,000 are given specific jobs at the temple. 6,000 are judges and officers. 4,000 keep the grounds. 4,000 play guitars. And 300 sing. This is crazy. Okay, this is, this is an inordinate amount of work and energy and time to pull this off, right? It's an essential part of what's going on in Chronicles. And you might wonder, why does it take up so much space? Why is the author of Chroniclers, or Chroniclers, Chronicles, the Chronicler, why is he belaboring this so much? Why does this matter so much? Now, what I want you to see, I hope, as we're preaching through this, and I hope you see this today, is the picture of what's happening in the life of Israel at this time is meant to serve as a type or as a shadow of what God longs for in his people in redemption, right? So all throughout history, from the very beginning of creation, all the way till the day when Jesus comes again and brings the new heavens and new earth to bear for all eternity, God has been working in, in this kind of inside out manner, right? He, he, there's this place at the very center where he meets with people. If you go all the way back to the garden, it's the garden in Eden, right? The place where Adam and Eve lived in relationship with God. Uh, they walked with him in the cool of the day. They heard from him. They received his commandments. And then what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to fill the earth and subdue it with his ways, right? So from the place of encountering God, they were meant to go out and establish God's ways in the world, Right? And then Adam and Eve sin, they get separated from their access to the Lord. There's no longer this place where they can go in and receive from God's ways. So they're separated from communion with God, but they still kind of go and fill the earth, right? But the problem is they're filling it with darkness and wickedness and violence and, and uh, sin, so God has to set up about a way to bring redemption there. And in the old covenant, the way that he did that was he chose a people uh, called Israel. And he said, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to have my glory with you. And then he gave a tabernacle where they met with him. They communed with him. They received from him. And then they lived their lives uh, around it, living up under the law. And then the nations of the earth were outside that they were meant to be a light to. They failed. They weren't able to do it. They were not able to walk in obedience this way. And what we see in Christ Jesus is Jesus makes the way for men and women to believe in God by faith and be accepted into his presence fully and finally, right? So now in Christ, we have communion with God, that place where we are, are, are knit to him in union by the Holy Spirit, and we are the dwelling place of God. Now his people are designed to live in an ordered way around his laws and commandments and his ways as we live in the world, as we seek to spread his mission to the ends of the earth, declare his glory, uh, proclaim his kingdom, 
disciple one another up into the ways of walking with him. From the jump, this is how God does things, right? There's this inside out pattern. And what we've been talking about again and again as we've walked through Chronicles is we are all witnessing. Unless you're, you have your eyes closed or you're living under a rock or you're not paying attention. We're witnessing all of these external things where we're going, we need renewal. We need God's ways renewed in the world, right? We see darkness abounding all around us, right? Uh, whatever, you, whatever news channel you decide to subscribe to, it's the same thing. Rage, anger, brokenness, destitution, right? We see it in uh, our society. We see it in our culture. We see it all around us. Families being torn apart, this militant, aggressive war against uh, families and, and, and the, the bonds that, that exist there. We see it everywhere. And we're going, we need renewal. We often then run to the outskirts to try to fix the symptoms, right? We go, well, this thing is broken. Let's run and yell at it and get mad about it and rally our team about it and fix it. But what we don't understand is the way that God designed the world is that solutions follow worship. Outcomes are birthed in the place of encounter with God, right? And so we're gonna see it all throughout Chronicles and you get the pattern right here at the beginning. What we're gonna see is renewal demands renewal of worship first and foremost. And that's the bell we've been ringing over and over and over again. And what we're gonna see right here is David's understanding of this, that the people of God have to be meticulously ordered around right worship first and foremost, or else nothing else is going to work. That's why there's so many chapters of names here. He's saying there's, it's worthwhile to take the time and energy and uh, instruction and finances and resources to put these things right at the center so that the life of God can be experienced throughout the people of God for the sake of the world. That's what's happening in these chapters. He's belaboring these points because this is what has to be at the middle. It's actually why we're belaboring these points as well. So here we go, letter D. Here's the outline for you, just for your own future understanding so you know what's going on. And I want you to notice right at the middle is this intentional look at musicians. So first in chapter 23, you see the organization of all the Levites. The Levites were the tribe that didn't have an inheritance in the land. They were meant to serve the Lord and the house of the Lord. So they had this task to give themselves over to serve God's purposes. So David says, hey, we're not, we're not a mobile people anymore. The Levites don't have to carry the tabernacle on their shoulders anymore. We're gonna settle down now. Now they need things to do, so we're 
going to order their labors around what God's doing here. Then you have the organization of the priests in chapter 24, the organization of the temple musicians in 25, what we heard read. And I want you to again notice, this comes dead set in the center of this extensive section. This is a profound revolution in redemptive history. There's a scholar, uh, a Christian scholar and pastor named Peter Lightheart who wrote a book about this moment and he called it From Silence to Song. He says it's this revolution in redemptive history where at the center of the tabernacle where it once was silent, meaning the sacrifices were done by the priest, now it's moved to this place where at the center of the worship of God's people is song. And it's this revolutionary moment in redemption. Number four, then we see the organization of the gatekeepers and treasurers in verse 26. And then there's these supervisors that oversee the whole endeavor in chapter 27. Look at, look at Roman numeral two here. So to understand what's going on, we have to understand David's revelation of God's economy, God's kingdom, and then how he seeks to order his kingdom around that. So these chapters are designed to present Israel as a microcosm of a redeemed people ordered for the purpose of worship. Again, that's what I've said from the beginning. The goal of redemption is that God desires to reorder a people around this kind of like inside out momentum, this vision of transformation and renewal centered around the worship of God, ordered from that place that would then spill out to the ends of the earth. In the new covenant, just to tie this up for us here, in the new covenant, this isn't about a building or a locale, right? We don't have the tabernacle anymore. We don't have the temple anymore. But the kingdom is inaugurated in the people of God, right? Wherever we gather, wherever we go, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in and through the church, right? So as we gather to worship, we are the dwelling place of God, right? This isn't, we're not talking about one building at one place in the world where we're supposed to go, right? We are now the gathered people of the risen Messiah who see the kingdom made known in our lives. However, I do want to say this, just because the shadows have been done away with in Jesus does not mean that the spiritual realities do not continue to exist, right? So we don't have the tabernacle, the temple that we go up to, but there still is this ordering of God's creation where at the center is God's people living in communion with him in the place of worship. That is to order our lives in obedience around his ways that then is to promote mission to the ends of the earth. That's what we see happen. Look at letter B. David's ordering of the kingdom is around the tabernacle or the temple, meaning the worship of the Lord. This is a remarkable turn in redemptive history. This is directly tied to David's revelation of worship in the place of God's kingdom. He possessed a unique understanding of how God ordered all of his creation 
And David sought to bring the whole of his life and his own assignment in agreement with this. Look at letter F. Because of this, David set up Levites before the ark to worship God. This included 4,000 full-time musicians, 288 singers, 4,000 gatekeepers. Can you think about how much money that was? It's a lot of money. 9,000 people paid full-time. In other words, at the center of David's expression of government were nearly 9,000 people employed to facilitate perpetual worship before the Lord. Look at this. This is the end that we saw here. The number of them, along with their brothers, trained in singing was 288. In 1 Chronicles 23, at the beginning, we see it this way. There's 24,000 set apart to do things. 4,000 of them are gatekeepers. 4,000 shall offer praise to the Lord with instruments. These are the singers. This is from chapter nine. They were in the chamber of the temple, free from other service, meaning they didn't, they didn't have to do other things to make their money. So this isn't just important by way of man hours. It's important for how they spent their money. Okay, so this was a important reality that made itself into the structures and the processes of what they did. Look at page two. We're told that David built this in accordance with the pattern of the heavenly temple that was revealed to him by the Lord. So David, this is 1 Chronicles 28. David gave Solomon, his son, the plan, this like blueprint for everything they were gonna do. The plan for all he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, the surrounding chambers, and the plan for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, the work of the service of the house of the Lord. Now look at verse 19. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord. So this came from God through David, all the work to be done according to the plan. Then we see later in 2 Chronicles, David had commanded his sons to continue this in obedience with the commandment given by God through his prophets. So David stationed Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, lyres, according to the commandment of David and Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. So I want you to get this. This is the point. This wasn't just what David wanted to do. This is what God wanted. Okay, this is a really important point that we not miss. This is what God wanted. Okay, so God wanted at the center of his people to be worship, communion, their lives to be ordered around offering up to him praise and thanksgiving and sacrifices of a, a whole heart in response to his redemption and his purposes. This is what God wanted. I want to tease that out a little bit. Look at Roman numeral three. So David understood that something, something foundational about God, namely that God is zealous to be worshiped and God has designed his kingdom to be established on the worship of his people, right? So we've, we've hit this again and again. Psalm 22, verse three, David writes that God is holy and he is enthroned on the praises of his people. So what that means is God takes up his lordship 
in a particular and a unique way in the places where his people align themselves with who he is in a spirit of praise. That God's kingdom is expanded and established in the world in places where God's people agree with who he is, that's called worship, and agree with what he's promised to do or ask him to do what he's promised to do. That's prayer. Right, So as we worship and as we pray, the scripture invites us to see that God's kingdom is made known in the world. The chronicler describes it this way. He says that the desire that God has is to find a heart ordered toward him in worship. He says in 2 Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless toward him. Jesus comes along and he says, the father is seeking something. He's looking for something. God is looking for something in the world. Worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Look at John chapter four here, verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We see in eternity, God will receive perpetual worship. I have scriptures there for you. And that God has ordered his kingdom around these things as his people draw near to him in the place of worship and prayer. Okay, so if we want to see the kingdom of God made known in our world, in our own lives, in our families, in our relationships, in our vocations, in how we've been called in this world, what we set our hands to. We have to pursue the advancing and the establishing of God's kingdom by God's means. There is no other way, right? I think so many of us were really sincere, were really like well-intended. I think we have this desire to see God's will established in the world, his kingdom established in the world, right? And we run around and we busy ourselves with all of these endeavors and we forsake or forget the primary way that he has invited us to see his kingdom advanced and established by his means. How did Jesus primarily ask us to see his kingdom advance and establish. In the Lord's prayer, he says, ask me, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the primary way that he's outlined for the people of God to see his work established. Now that doesn't mean we don't get about work. We, we, we go and do things. We work hard. We share the gospel. We disciple people. We, we, we bring our lives into agreement with who God is through obedience and holiness. We, we do those things. But we can't run after those things and forsake the primary means that he's given us and expect the outcome to be what we want. The primary way, he says, is ask me, ask me, ask me. 
Worship me, exalt me. Let me be enthroned on your praises, on your prayers, on your thanksgiving. And see what happens there. All right, so this verse, these verses in chapter 25, in this massive section that are belaboring the point that David ordered the whole kingdom around the worship of God. That this was like the thing that God wanted at the heart of everything was vibrant worship to his name. At the heart of this, he sets up this unique reality of music and song at the center of it. And again, I, I think that sometimes we like, scratch our heads over this because I, I, I don't know what you believe about what happens when we sing together, right? Like, uh, I don't know if you think that like music is just the thing that you do because all the churches do it, right? It's like the thing that we do to like kind of warm people up before the real work happens, right? Kind of like get us all lathered up and ready to go or entertain us for a second. Like, I, I, I don't know what you think is happening when we're singing together, but I want to actually dive into what's the purpose of music and song? Why is it at the center, right? Like if we're belaboring that the people of God need to be ordered around worship and then right at the heart of this, there's this particular place of music and song in worship. Why in the world does it matter? Right, because you might walk in and go, well, I, I don't have a very good voice. Or I don't really like the songs we sing. Or I'm not really sure what's going on here. I want to go, the Bible everywhere puts this glorious reality of what is happening when the saints gather together to sing that I think, again, I'm rooting all this. This is my presupposition and my thesis before you guys. I think for us to see the long game renewal that we would long for requires a reawakening of vibrant, robust worship before the Lord in the, in the family of God. I think that it is an essential part. So let's look at the importance of music and singing. So if the heart of God's people as his holy dwelling place in the world is to live in a posture of engaging with him in the place of agreeing with who he is and his purposes, I think we have to see one of the most profound gifts for facilitating and stewarding this reality is the gift of music, particularly the gift of singing together. From this passage, we do see one of the central realities of a kingdom people ordered around worship is music and song. Go to page three. Because of this, this is letter D, we desire to build and cultivate as a church a vibrant, healthy, and anointed worship ministry at the heart of our church. Not because we want a cool church, not because we want a fun church, not because we want a hypey church. I want a kingdom-ordered church. I want a kingdom-ordered, anointed church a family of God that's ordered in the way that God desires his people to be ordered. And because of that, I want this right at the heart of what we do, alive and vibrant. Okay, I'll let you read most of that on your own. 
Go to letter F. I'm just going to start here and we'll see how much time I got. I'm going to talk about the glorious realities of music and song. There is a mysterious and spiritual reality to worship through song and music. Throughout the Bible, the presence of music is closely related to the operation of the priestly ministry and the people of God. Okay, so I'm going to give, I've got eight here. There's no way I'll get to them all but I'm gonna give you some of them. Number one, singing is a means of being filled with the Spirit. So Paul instructs the Ephesian church to be filled with the Spirit, right? This is an ongoing reality in our lives. This is something that we're to seek after, to partner with God's grace in, pursuing the means of, right? We, he, he, He commands us or exhorts us, don't be drunk with wine. Don't give your lives over to debauchery or darkness. Rather, people of God, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we should all, if if the Spirit of God lives in us, we should all resonate in that moment and go, yes, I want to be filled with the Spirit. How? And Paul goes, I'm glad you asked. Because I'm going to give you a way, but it might not be the way that you would imagine. To be filled with the Spirit, he gives them a precise means of how they're to do this. By singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Right? If, again, if we're going to talk about being an inside-out type of people, ordered toward communion with God, worship with Him, transformation there that leads to multiplication and mission, if that's what we want to be about, we have to see being continually filled with the Holy Spirit as an essential element of that. And if we go, we want to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, where do we go to do that? Paul goes, here's the how. Sing. Address each other with psalms, That's the songs of the Bible. And I'm actually like dreaming of the days where we will sing the Psalms more verbatim than we even do. You guys are like, what? (laughs) The songs of the Bible that teach us, teach us from the from the Holy Spirit inspired upon the writers, teach us about what it means to look to God in the middle of uh, darkness, in the middle of enemies, in the middle of despair, in the middle of all sorts of emotions. We, We need to be singing those songs, hymns, songs of the church, songs that people have written that teach us about Christ and his work and what he's done in the world and how we respond to him and spiritual songs, songs that God births in us in the moment to respond to him in thanksgiving and in grace, right? He asks us, sing those things, make melody to the Lord with all of your heart, engage the whole of who you are by giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the reasons that we sing together, when we walk in the door on time, I say that all the time, because worship starts at 10 a.m. The work is the whole time. This matters. We aren't just throwing some stuff aside to like wait till we get to the real stuff. 
This matters from the jump when we say, people of God, this is the call to worship him from the word. We are buckling in and doing spiritual work from that moment till the time we say, go in peace. That is all spiritual work, right? So when we walk in the door at 10 o'clock or 9.53, get our seat, got our coffee in our hand, we sit down, and the first song comes on and we're groggy and I don't want to open my mouth and sing because I don't really like this one. <laughs> sing. Why? Because we long to be filled with the Spirit. We want the Spirit to be active in our midst, to be alive in our midst, to be present in our midst, to be working in our midst. I want the gifts of the Holy Spirit moving among us in our gathering. I want people being uh, worked on in their soul by the Holy Spirit, pain being healed, uh, addictions being broken, strength being given to people, even as we sing. Not just when somebody's standing up here yelling at you. When we do the work together to worship God, when we praise him and thank him and give him glory for who he is, what does the word say? He is enthroned here. Do you know what God's kingdom looks like? It looks like peace. It looks like conviction. It looks like a desire for holiness. It looks like confidence that God enjoys you. It looks like things. When we sing, God is doing stuff. It looks like darkness being pushed back in our city. Do we want to see the gospel break in in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, in our lives? Do you know what Paul says? Why the gospel isn't going forth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? It's because the God of this age has blinded the hearts of unbelievers so they can't see the truth. Do you know what happens when God takes up his residency and his throne among his people, darkness gets pushed back. We, we will see more salvations as we give glory to Jesus in singing. We'll see more of his kingdom established and we will be filled. All right, number two, music, singing can be an act of prophecy. In the establishing of the Davidic tabernacle, the Levites were given a charge to prophesy on their instruments before the Lord. This demonstrates that songs and music can be prophetic. You heard it three times in chapter 25, in verse one, in verse two, and in verse three. It's declared each of these houses, each of these families was given a, a, a charge one to prophesy with the lyres and harps and with cymbals, one to prophesy under the direct direction of David, and one to prophesy with lyres as they thanked and praised the Lord. And you might be going like, what in the world? How, how is music or singing prophecy? Let me give you just a couple ideas. Number, here, here's a couple ideas. These aren't on your notes. Number one, Words have power 
to create and destroy. Okay? The, the scripture says the power of life and death is where? In the tongue. Right? So as we sing the truth, as we sing the truth of who God is, what he's promised, how he's ordered the world, we sing in accordance with the truth of God's word. We are declaring words and they have the power to build up and, and in, in accordance with God's design, create things. Right? They bring life. They bring uh, fruitfulness and strength. The words we sing have a prophetic quality as we sing one to another in this place. Words have the power to create. They also have the power to destroy. I'll give you one more reason that these are prophetic. There's, there's a lot that we could get into, but music, as we gather together and we sing together, and there's like instrumentation in unity and we're coming together in unity, we're actually giving ourselves and principalities, powers, angels, demons, we are giving them and ourselves a glimpse of the end. When all of creation will be united into one song. We're actually prophesying of a day when King Jesus will be worshipped for who he is universally. We're in a small microcosm way. As we order our little spiritual family around worship and the declaration of who he is, we are giving witness to one day that's going to come. When Jesus returns, he brings forth the new heavens and the new earth, and the Psalms, we hear it all throughout the Psalms, trees clap their hands, mountains break forth in song, creation itself declares the glory and the majesty of the man Jesus Christ. And all of God's people, even into all eternity, say worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, glory, dominion, might, honor forever and ever. Amen. We give witness to that. Look at the last page. Number four, music and singing can be an act of spiritual warfare. It's evident in the scripture that spiritual realities are altered as God's people participate in musical worship. Okay, again, when we walk in 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning and we hear the first song, we need to not just go like, I'm here to like get entertained or get something. We are going to war. When we sing the praises of God and give thanks to him for who he is and what he has done, when we sing that Jesus defeated death, that he sacrificed his life, that he gave of himself to open a door of salvation for any and all, when we sing that God is holy, when we sing that God is a refuge, when we sing things like, how long, Lord, will you let this go on? 
We are taking up the weapons of warfare and going to battle. This gives evidence to the reality that God takes up his throne, like I said, establishes his government, his rule, his kingdom in the places where his people are in agreement with him. Look at seven and eight. I just want to say these really fast. Music and singing engages our affections and it engages our bodies. One of the realities that is beautiful about singing that is different than just listening or different about having a conversation is that singing engages the whole of your being. You aren't just a head. You're not just a mind. You aren't just a set of thoughts. And you're not just a set of experiences or feelings. You are a whole person made in the image of God, required, required, invited. You get to offer the whole of yourself back to him in worship, right? So when Paul says in Romans 12, offer yourselves, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. One of the Ways that we get to practice that. It's not the whole way. It isn't the whole way. That's talking about walking in holiness and giving of your life and your time and your strength and seeking to have your mind renewed. That's, that's a whole life reality. One of the ways we get to practice that though is when we gather and we engage the whole of our person in song. It's why we lift our hands. It's why we clap. It's why one day I really hope that we get to dance somewhere. Somebody hear me. We are embodied creatures. We aren't just thinking things and we're not just feeling things. We, the whole of our lives, are meant to be offered back to the Lord because of what he has done. Amen.